And now if you'll stand for God's word, we are going to read Psalm 34 this morning. Pastor Bruce continues his summer in the Psalms lesson. This morning we want to taste and see that the Lord is good. Again, we'll be reading Psalm 34. You can find it in the Pew Bible on page 318. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers him. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for your word and its power. Lord, teach us this morning to taste and see the goodness and the greatness of you. God, may you mold us this morning through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we continue in the Summer in the Psalm series, I want to begin with a question. How many of you have ever had a, quote, close call in life? That is, have you ever been in a situation where if one small detail would have been different, someone, perhaps even yourself, would have been seriously hurt or injured or even killed? Well, for example... Take a look at some of these close calls in this video coming up. <laughs> may change your thoughts on that. Close calls. So what do you say after a close call? What comes out of your mouth when you know the Lord has just delivered you from a very serious situation? A close call. You probably take a deep breath, a deep sigh of relief, and say, wow, that was close. You may even stop and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. You may even pray a little differently afterwards. You may even sing with a little more joy. You may live with a little more gratitude in your heart. There's just something about tasting the deliverance of the Lord that changes you. In fact, it begins to focus your eyes and your heart on God. And today we're going to learn 
why God deserves our worship, especially in light of the countless close calm moments in our lives. David here experienced several close calls in his life, but one is particularly unique to him, to say the least. Notice David's close call here in Psalm chapter 34. If you're here for the first time, you want to take notes, you're welcome to grab one of the, in, the sermon note insert in your bulletin and follow along. In my Bible, there's an interesting statement just under the title of Psalm 34, which describes David's close call. It's a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. You may be wondering, what in the world is that all about? Well, it's about a time when David was literally running for his life from King Saul. You can read all about it in 2 Samuel, in rather 1 Samuel chapter 21, but here's the cliff notes of David's close call. David was anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. The only problem was Saul was still the recognized king. And Saul wanted David dead. You say, well, why is that? Well, Saul was very jealous of David's success as a warrior. He was also very jealous of the people's affection that was set on David. Saul had tried, therefore, several times to kill David. And as he chased him through the country of Israel, David was running for his life. David was so desperate for refuge that he flees to the country of Gath. Now that may not seem like a, a big deal to you, except Gath was at the heart of the Philistines, the arch enemy of the Israelites. Seems David is hoping that he can become kind of a, a hired soldier for the king of Gath. There's just one problem though. The king's servants recognize David, and they tell the king that David is a famous Jewish warrior. Keep in mind, that that giant that David killed as a boy was the champion of the Philistine army. And keep in mind that Saul refused to give his daughter to David in marriage until he had actually killed 100 of these same Philistines and brought back their foreskins. So David, we could say, is not in friendly territory here. In fact, he's in big trouble since this is baseball seasons and the Royals are on a winning streak right now, to use baseball terminology, David is in a pickle. You know what a pickle is, right? It's when you're caught in between bases and you're in a hot spot. You're between a rock and a hard place, in other words, and there seems to be no way out. That's David's predicament here. So what does David do? Well, believe it or not, he pretended to be a madman. In fact, listen to what it says here in 1 Samuel 21, verses 12 through 13. It says, David took these words to heart, and he was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. And so he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Now, you've got to admit, this is pretty bizarre stuff for anybody let alone the next king of Israel. David pretends to be insane. His, 
he claws at the doors of the gate and, and he foams at the mouth. And as a result, the king of Gath wants nothing to do with him. In fact, you go to 1 Samuel 21 again, you continue reading verses 14 and 15, and it tells us, Achish said to his servants, look at that man. He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? And so he sends David away, and David departs unscathed. What a close call. David is delivered from the hand of the king of the Philistines. And he writes this psalm, Psalm 34, as kind of a, a celebration of what God has done for him. And so in many, many ways, this psalm is an exhortation now for us to worship God in light of God's goodness in David's life. In fact, verse 8 captures the heart of this psalm, the, the essence of it, the whole theme of the psalm when David writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. David knows firsthand that the Lord truly is good. And as a result, he now wants us to join him in worship. In other words, David wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we could kind of summarize the big idea of the psalm, the main thrust of the psalm in this way that the goodness of God should lead us to the worship of God. Because when you literally, when not literally so much, but when you, when you literally, in a spiritual sense, taste and see that the Lord is good, listen, your heart is compelled to worship God. You're motivated. You're, you're, you're inspired to do so. God's goodness leads you to praise Him. It leads you to pray to Him. It leads you to turn to Him, to fear Him, to trust Him, to seek Him. And all these are ways in which we worship God. And so what I want us to do is take this psalm and look at it and kind of see it through six taste and see reasons why we should worship God, why He deserves our worship. The first taste and see reason is this. Number one, God is worthy. First and foremost, the reason to worship him is simply because he is worthy of our praise. David begins this psalm with a shout of joy. He begins with a statement about God's worthiness to be praised. Now, we hear the word praise quite a bit in religious circles or here in church even, and so it tends to be one of those words that's been so overused, it kind of loses its meaning for us. The word praise is really just a, it's an expression of gratitude. It's an act of worship that ascribes worth to someone or something, and then it communicates it in some way. In fact, the very root meaning of the word praise is connected with making noise which is why singing to God is such a big part, plays such a big role in our worship of God. Notice how David emphasizes the broad scope of his praise in verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The idea here is that the powerful deliverance experience is creating within David a commitment to continual praise. David has seen firsthand the deliverance of God, and now he is overwhelmed within him to praise God. 
And not just in the good times, but what does he say? At all times. And how will David's praise be evident? He says his praise will be continually in my mouth or on my lips. Here's the point. The words that flow out of our mouth are a representation of what is going on in our hearts. David has experienced God's goodness and now he has a desire for other people to know what he knows. And so he now tells us in verse 2, My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. The word boast simply means to be supremely thankful or satisfied with something great. And this word is used all throughout the Psalms as a means to call people to worship the Lord. And so the joy that now overflows from one's heart to one's mouth is contagious in the presence of other people. In fact, you want others to join you in this praise of God. Look what David says in verse 3. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us, us, exalt his name together. And so here's the idea. Personal praise isn't enough. God deserves more than just one voice praising Him. And so David calls us to corporate praise, church praise, family praise. Come together and let's magnify. And so don't miss the significance of this. So many times when we're in the middle of a close call, or when we're facing troubles and trials in our lives, it's, it's so easy to think you're all alone. It's easy to think life stinks. And God's not fair in this situation. But when we worship together, we are reminded that we're not alone. And God is still good even when life stinks. And so David is calling us to magnify the Lord and exalt His name together as brothers and sisters in Christ. As a family of God. A second taste and see reason to worship God is God can deliver you. He can deliver you, so pray to him. David wants us to see that God is able to powerfully help those who put their hope in him. If David were here in person right now this morning, and you could go back into one of the offices behind me, and you could share your situation with him, your struggle, your trial, your troubles, I think this is what David would say to you just as he says to all of us here now in verses 4 through 7. Look what he says. He says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, you got to, I, I, this is why I love David, because he is so blatantly honest in these psalms. He just sheds all the veneer away. And he exposes his heart before God and even before us. And he admits he is so desperate that he describes himself as this poor man. In other words, he has nothing that really matters except God in turning to him. And yet, he did not despair. Instead, he sought the Lord's help, and the Lord delivered him. What a great testimony this is, and what a helpful set of instructions that we have here in verses 4 through 7. Notice the sequence 
of what David says here. First of all, there is trouble. David speaks of all his fears. He speaks of all his troubles. In other words, David seems to be at the low point of his life. So what do you do when you're consumed with fears and troubles and in need of help? Well, second, there is prayer. David says, I sought the Lord in verse 4. He says in verse 6, this poor man cried out to the Lord. And the word sought here is a very specific word for asking or seeking the Lord for help. So let me ask you, are you trying to deal with your trials, your problems, whatever it is in your life, on your own? Or are you taking them to the Lord in prayer? Because number three, the sequence is, first there's trouble, second there's prayer, and then third, there's deliverance. David tells us he sought the Lord, and the Lord heard him and delivered him from all his fears and trouble. In fact, in verse 7, David portrays God's protection around him like an angel that is guarding his very life. We want God to deliver us from our fears and troubles, though, by just eliminating all things that are causing them. But God often delivers us from our fears and our troubles by protecting us with his very presence. And then fourth, there is joy. David's life, it says, became radiant with the joy of being in the care of such a good God. When he writes in verse 5, they looked to him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. Yes, life may be filled with fears and troubles, but those who seek the Lord will find the presence of the Lord to be sweet, comforting, and empowering. So when you're tempted to despair, remember the words in 1 John chapter 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. Listen, God has done it in the past. And God can do it again now. He can deliver you. So pray to him in your worship. A third taste and see reason to worship God is number three, God is good. All the time. And as the saying goes, all the time, God is good. So turn to Him in worship. This third reason captures, as we already said, the heart of this psalm, the essence of the entire psalm. As David invites us now to turn to the Lord and to experience His goodness, to experience Him the way He has. Look again what David writes, what he says in verses 8 through 10. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe it even in the midst of troubles and trials? So how does the Lord manifest His goodness to us? How does the Lord show His goodness to us, especially when you're facing troubles and trials? Well, here's one way. God offers us all we need to those who turn to Him. David says those who fear the Lord have no lack. And he says that those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now, don't misinterpret what that means here. That's not a guarantee that God will give us everything we want or desire in life. For there's a difference between having everything and lacking nothing. Some people seem to have everything in life, don't they? 
least that appears that way. You may know a few of those people. They seem to have everything this world has to offer, and yet, if truth be known, they are empty inside. While other people seem to have very little, but they lack nothing of substance. They're fulfilled. They're satisfied with the goodness of God. What an incredible demonstration of God's goodness. God offers us all we need. So how should we respond to such an offer that God gives us here? Well, David makes it clear that we must turn to him to experience it. Did you notice the action verbs in these verses? There's five of them. Taste, see, trust, fear, and seek. In other words, God's promise here doesn't eliminate the need for our responsibility. It doesn't eliminate human responsibility, but rather it makes it possible. And so we must taste and see that the Lord is good. This means we can only discover the goodness of God by acting on our faith in God. And don't miss the order in which David says this. He says, first, we taste. And then as a result of tasting, he says, we will see that the Lord is good. Now, does it not stagger you to know that our God, the one who created you, the one who gave you his son to redeem you, wants you to experience his goodness? And yet, that's what he wants for us. God invites you to know him, to trust him, to enjoy him, and to experience his goodness. But let's be honest here. It's easy to think that if we obey God, if we, if we follow the Lord, then he owes us somehow, some way. In fact, he, he owes me a, quote, good life. And of course, we define that as he owes me a good job, he owes me a happy marriage, he owes me good children, and you know, the list goes on and on, whatever's your flavor of the month. But God is not indebted to you for anything. Listen, he may alleviate, even eliminate your trials and troubles, or he may not. But what we do know is that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good and he offers us all that we need in his son Jesus Christ this is why when you go to the New Testament the Apostle Paul writes about God's goodness in this way listen to what he says in Romans 8 27 and 28 and we know that those who love God all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose 2 Corinthians 9 eight says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And these statements are based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so God's goodness is found, it's, it's experienced in His Son. God really is good all the time. So David encourages us, turn to Him. The fourth taste and see reason to worship God, is God's ways work. God's ways work, so fear Him. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, in your reading of the Psalms, uh, hopefully you're still continuing in your, your uh, Summer in the Psalms reading, and uh, we should be finishing up this week or next week. And, uh, but sometimes the Psalms can sound a lot like Proverbs. 
And here's a good example of that as we come to verse 11. David here highlights the wisdom of living life God's way. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, come, you children, listen to me. Now, he's not being condescending when he says, come, you children, in the sense you're just acting like a bunch of kids. Now, children here is, is used as a way to emphasize that he is now the teacher and we are the learners. And so it's a term of respect in the sense that he's inviting us to come and learn. And he says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David mentioned the fear of God earlier. And what he does, he picks up that same theme again, but he does so from a different perspective when he says, come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In other words, David is inviting us to do something. David's inviting us to learn about the fear of the Lord from his own personal experience, which indicates now to us that we must learn to fear God. Why is that? Well, think about it, in your own life, even. Fearing God isn't a natural thing for people like us, is it? Fearing the Lord is not natural for sinners like us. Ignoring God is marginalizing God, thinking small thoughts about God. That's what's normal for us. But fearing God, that is something we must learn how to do. So who's qualified to teach us about the fear of God? Someone who's learned firsthand to fear God himself. Someone like David. David learned firsthand the importance of fearing God through his troubles and trials in life. And believe me, he had many of them. And what he learned, now he can't contain he has to pass it on. He wants to share it with us. David knows, in other words, that God's ways work in life when we follow God's ways. This is why David asks in verse 12, who is the man or who is the woman, who is the person out there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Who doesn't want that? That's what the world is chasing. It's what our culture is always trying to promote, but it's an empty promise. And yet here David invites us to come and know that in the person of Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from David about the fear of God? We learn a very vital truth here. When we fear God, it will show up in real life. Listen, this isn't a concept that just is pie in the sky. It's not a concept that we can't just, you know, it just hangs up there. And we're like, yeah, yeah, fear the God, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. No, Dave is now bringing it down to an applicational point for us. And he's saying that when we fear God, it will now manifest, it will show up in real life situations. So what is the fear of the Lord before we get to that? Well, one aspect of fear means awe or reverence for God. And David now applies this to life, and def he defines the fear of the Lord now by our actions in life. Watch the flow of thought with me here. Go back to verse 11. Look what it says. In verse 11, David says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And now drop down to verses 13 and 14, where he shows us what the fear of the Lord looks like in real life. 
Look what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Whoa. Boy, he just hit us where it hurts, didn't he? He hit us where real life meets it is, where the rubber meets the road. Because here's the deal, folks, and I'm as guilty as this as all of us are. It's easy to say, yeah, yeah, I fear God. It's easy to say that and to think that, but David makes it clear that if we really do fear God, it will show up in our lives, in real life situations. Fearing God shows up, he says, first of all, in the, what we say, and second of all, it shows up in what we do. And David knew this better than anyone, because when troubles are facing us, we are tempted to do what? We're tempted to complain verbally. Read the Old Testament about the nation of the Israelites. And I'm telling you, complaining and grumbling is a gregorious sin against God. That's my boys. That's one thing I, oh, that just complaining, grumbling. And you read what God did to the Israelites, those, those who complained and grumbled against him. Because their concept and their expectations of what God should be doing in their life didn't match up to what God was really doing. And they complained. And when we're facing our own trials and troubles, we, it's so easy to verbally complain, and if we're not verbally think, saying it, we're thinking it. And then it's also easy to criticize. When enemies are pursuing us, and when I use the phrase enemies, it may be a family member, it may be a co-worker, it may be a neighbor who's just giving you a hard time, somebody you have a conflict with, whatever. And when that's happening, we are tempted to respond how? With hate or with vengeance. But David warns us here to guard what we say with our mouths and to guard what we do with our lives. Because in the end, David knows God's ways work. He's lived it. He's experienced it. And he wants us to learn from that. So fear him and let it show up in the way you live. David gives us another reason to worship God. Number five, God cares for the righteous. So trust him. He cares for the righteous. Now this is a, another important truth to remember because most of our lives are spent waiting on God to act on our behalf. And it's tempting to think that God doesn't care. God, he's indifferent to what's going on in my life. Or that he's... He's ignoring my cries and my pleas for help. But look what David writes in verse 15. This is beautiful. Look what he says. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Folks, listen to me. God is not ignorant of what's happening in your life here this morning. He knows every detail about it. He sees, he knows, and he hears the cry of your heart. David says in verse 16, The faith of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. In other words, listen, sometimes we think 
the wicked are just getting away with it. But God knows what the unrighteous have done. And David's reminding us here that judgment day is coming for them. And then David continues in verses 17 and 18. He says, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Again, it's so easy to think that because God is not acting immediately on our timetable, that he doesn't care about me. Sometimes the circumstances in which we are facing those trials, those troubles, they seem almost overwhelming to us. It seems like they're even crushing us. But David reminds every hurting person here that those who put their trust in God will find real comfort and real help for the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Now, this is one of the great contradictions, or not contradictions, I'm sorry, one of the great contrasts in the Word of God. And what it is, is, is the humble that receives help from God. But God does what to the proud? He opposes them. In other words, he puts his hand out against them. I always like the, the analogy of, since football season's coming, a running back who has the ball. And what's, he has it tucked under one arm, but when a defender like DJ's coming up on the, as a cornerback on that running back, what, what's that defender going to do? Stiff arm you oppose you and that's what God does to the proud but not the humble oh no Peter reminds us in 1st Peter chapter 5 verses 6 and 7 that God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble therefore he says humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time casting all your care upon him for he cares for you be humble, in other words, and trust God, for he really does care for you as the righteous. Which brings us to the last taste and see reason to worship God. Number six is because God is our ultimate hope. So seek him. David looks in this last section beyond the immediate circumstances, and he looks to the ultimate hope that we have in God. David writes in verse 19, look at it. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Tell me something we don't know already, right? How many of you can say, been there, done that, or even still living that? You're right there now. And you can say, yeah, many are my afflictions, trials, troubles. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so David, this is again why I love him. He's so honest. He acknowledges real life for you and I even. He acknowledges that life is filled with many troubles and trials, what he calls afflictions, and yet David also knows that in the end, ultimately, God will deliver us out of them all. In other words, get this, affliction doesn't win. Trial doesn't win. Troubles doesn't win. Who wins? God does. What a beautiful promise. Further, God protects the righteous in the midst of their troubles and trials. When David writes in verse 20, he guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. That means we do, that doesn't mean God doesn't allow us to suffer 
even suffer persecution, even suffer physically. In fact, this language here is symbolic for God's preservation of his children all the way to the end. He will, as we learn in Romans 8, bring us all the way home to glory, to heaven, amen? And yet, in fact, what's interesting, this verse was recognized as being literally fulfilled or literally true of his son Jesus at the crucifixion when he was cared for by God the Father, even as he bore the curse of our sins. Even though he hung on the cross and died for our sins, not one of his bones were broken. God protected him. The last two verses here of the psalm are kind of the climax, if you will. These last two verses should motivate us to worship God like none other. Because these two verses contrast for us the destiny of the wicked versus the destiny of the righteous. For the wicked, look what David says, there is condemnation. In verse 21, he writes, Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be what? Condemned. That is, they will bear the guilt, their guilt before God. That's the destiny of the wicked. But notice what he says about the destiny of the righteous. He says there is no condemnation. David writes in verse 22, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. That is, they will be redeemed. They will be rescued. They will be reconciled once and for all to God in heaven. Now, David is speaking about a reality that was true for him, and yet he's speaking about a reality that the New Testament fully celebrates in Jesus Christ. Think with me for a moment about these two concepts, redeemed and no condemnation. With that in mind, let's close by expanding our scope beyond just this psalm here, Psalm 34, and beyond just life here on earth. For every person here, listen, we will stand before God to give an account of our lives. Now, I don't know exactly what that moment will be like, but I suspect that our sins and our unworthiness will be very, very clear to us on that day. And I think we will see the beauty of God's holiness. And it will be devastating in His glory in comparison to our sinfulness. And the verdict of guilt for the product of our lives will be overwhelming and convincing and very clear. Can you imagine it with me? In front of you is a holy God, and there you stand in all of your sinfulness, and it will be eternally dangerous. So the question becomes, what is your hope on that day? Well, when confronted with the holiness of God and the guilt of sin, listen to me, listen. The only hope is that God counts you forgiven and that He counts you righteous through your faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, that is our only hope. Faith in Jesus Christ is our only hope on that day of reckoning. This is why we claim the promise of Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, where it says, but God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us.
for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath. God's wrath through Him, through Jesus Christ. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is therefore now no what? Condemnation for those who are in whom? Jesus Christ. And so can you imagine what it will be like in that moment, standing before God, to see a holy God welcoming you into His heaven as one of His children, redeemed and righteous? Will that not be a glorious day? I can only imagine what it will be like to know that you are safe from God's wrath only because in this life, now, you repented of your sin, and you trusted Christ for your salvation. Listen, there will be nothing, I mean nothing more joyful than knowing that God has forgiven you of all your sins. And the joy of that moment, of that climactic time, listen, that will be the basis for singing this psalm, and in particular, singing Verses 1 and 2, for all eternity. Where David writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. So if you're here this morning, and you've tasted, and you've seen that the Lord is good, then let me encourage you. Let the goodness of God fuel your worship of God. But if you're here this morning and you have yet to taste God's goodness, then I urge you to taste and see that Jesus Christ is good. For blessed is the man or the woman who trusts in Him for their salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. We once again thank you for your word here in the Psalms. A testimony of David about your goodness to us and how you invite us to taste and see your goodness and your grace, especially in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, your faithfulness to us is something to be praised in what you have done for us and continue to do for us. And Lord, I pray that as we now sing a chorus of response, that we would respond in praise with gratitude of heart. We would cry out to you in need, if need be. And so however you work in our hearts now, in the next few minutes while the praise team sings, let us respond according to your will. We pray these things in your name. Amen.